1: One Sunday, I was sitting in uh, my church, First Baptist Austin, and we'd also worked very hard against the expansion of gambling in Texas and casinos. And that week, you know, had a very tense meeting with the chairman of a committee who was proposing and pushing forward a bill to expand gambling in Texas. And I turned to my left and looked down the row, and there he is sitting on the same pew.
2: I'm Morgan Lee. You are listening to Quick to Listen. Today, we will be talking about Payday loans, churches, and local government, just like you all expected. I'm joined here by today, also just like you expected, except not really, my boss and co-host for this week, Richard Clark. Hey, Morgan. What's up, Richard?
3: Uh, I feel weird. I feel like I'm in the twilight zone.
2: What's going on?
3: I've been on podcasts before, but never this one. Oh,
2: yeah? Yeah. I'm on your podcast a lot.
3: The Calling? Yeah. Let's talk about The Calling, <laughs> Let's just say people should check out The Calling. It's a good show, right?
2: Yeah. So unlike our show, which is a roundtable show, Richard does an interview show. He is the interviewer. The interviewees are all different types of people.
3: Mm-hmm. Just Russell Moore, Don- Jonathan Brooks, who are some other people that have been on.
2: They're people who have some sort of connection to the local church. Yeah. Which is what makes them noteworthy and yep. why you interview them.
3: And the, And just church leaders in general, Christian leaders in general.
2: Wonderful. So who is joining us today?
3: So today we're joined by Stephen K. Reeves. Uh, Stephen serves as the Associate Coordinator of Partnerships and Advocacy for the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Prior to joining CBF in October 2013, he served as Director of Public Policy and as Legislative Counsel for the Texas Baptist Christian Life Commission, where he directed the work of the Citizenship and Public Policy Office in Austin. But uh, most noteworthy, he's an avid music fan and a passionate supporter of Texas Longhorn football, which are you as excited as I am about the college football season starting?
1: Absolutely. It's going to be a great year for the Longhorns, I'm sure of it. And
3: I think it's going to be a great year for the Auburn Tigers. I think that Uh, Steven
2: needs to know something very important, which is that my sister went to OU. Boomer Ooh. sooner. It's yeah. oh, rough. <laughs> I think she even drove down one time to go to one of the games.
1: They're a lot of fun when they play each other. That's for sure.
2: Do you have any really good like college football memories?
1: Uh, yes. Besides,
2: besides Vince Young beating USC. I cheered for USC for so long.
1: Uh, well, I would say every time you get to make it to the Texas OU game at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, That's definitely a great memory. Uh, There's nothing like that game. And uh, for football fans, I I think I would rather go to that game than the Super Bowl. It's that much fun.
2: Well, it's great to have you, Stephen. And apologies to everyone who hates college football. (laughs) You are missing out. (laughs) So this week, we are going to be talking about some of the themes raised in the film The Ordinance. It's a 30 minute film that you can see on Christianity Today's website right now. And it's about Christians in a small Texas town trying to push back on payday lending and payday loans.
3: We should mention that there's an interview with the filmmaker at The Calling this week. Just wanted to point that out. Noted. Cool.
2: The ordinance tells the story of church leaders who become increasingly aware of how low income people in their community are getting ripped off by these high interest loans. But Many of the people that are getting ripped off by them are also turning to them out of financial desperation. In this film, initially, church leaders attempt to pass legislation at the state level. And there's bipartisan bill co-sponsors, but the legislation ultimately fails. And so some of the organizers and advocates decide to pivot away from working at the Texas state level legislation. And they begin to generate campaigns in cities across the state Um, that regulate these cities by passing ordinances, hence the name The Ordinance. One of the reasons that we want to talk about this today is that this approach of really seeking change at the city level doesn't necessarily reflect how many Americans, and Christians for that matter, choose to get involved with government. Unless you've been living under a rock, you know that we've been talking about the presidential race for about the past two years, which is half of a term of a president. So even if you look at voter turnout, for instance, um, generally it hovers around 60% during presidential years and then 40% during midterms. It's often a lot lower than that for odd year primary and local elections. And so I'd love to get all of your guys' take on that. But before we do that, I just want to let everyone know that this podcast is made possible by you supporting our our magazine that we work here, Christianity Today, we do our best to cover everything that's explosive and bombastic in the world in a thoughtful way, in an honest way, in a way that will get you to consider things more carefully. And we will cover people and events and ideas that are shaping how we think about church, how we think about culture. And as a subscriber, you are going to be supporting that. And you can do that and become a subscriber for $10 a year. That is If you join us on orderct.com slash quick to listen, so $10 a year, orderct.com slash quick to listen. That's all one word, by the way. You will get 10 print issues if you do that. You can go through all of our archives and see how evangelicals have thought about things. I will say we have lots of really, really great content that is evergreen that will be made available to you. And those archives date back to 1956. So, Without further ado, let's head back to the gut check. Stephen, I'm just wondering if you can give me your initial reaction to some of these voter turnout numbers.
1: Very disappointing. And I think all of our politics would be improved if more folks took the time to vote. I saw something recently that maybe 9% of eligible voters helped select the two candidates we have right now. I think that's a problem.
2: Richard?
3: That makes sense to me. It definitely resonates with how I tend to Treat elections. I try not to think about them until the presidential one. Uh, It makes me reconsider. It makes me wonder if that should be the case.
2: Guys, we may be able to change Richard's heart and mind.
3: We can get through this
2: during this course of this podcast. Yeah, I would say that these figures, in many ways, definitely discourage me and also confuse me about something that we're going to talk about a lot, which is about like where people are most effective at making change. I've always found it very bizarre that people end up wanting to vote most for the election that in some ways affects them least. So I first want to just ask us, like, what do you guys think makes us so hyper aware and interested and more likely to vote when it comes to stuff at the national level?
1: The media attention, first and foremost, I think folks just see it and are inundated by it. And it becomes a topic of conversation and you kind of choose your team, so to speak, and then root for them. And I think that um, the amount of conversations that go on about it seem to um, draw folks' interest and action on it.
3: When I'm thinking about a presidential election, it does affect us the least, I guess, technically, but it affects the most people, you know? You could argue that, that, like, that's something that affects an entire country. And uh, the thing that I'm really convinced by is that it affects culture in a way that local elections don't as as broadly right
2: i'm just gonna like jump in there right now and think that that's really interesting that you talk about culture right to me what i hear by that is that culture is not necessarily defined at a, at a smaller level right now we don't necessarily i mean we'll talk about the midwest right in right, the midwest culture but even in the midwest you eat at a lot of the same restaurants and listen to the same music as you will in other parts of the country right and i wonder if that wasn't true before we had the internet or other different types. Even of as media. I was
3: saying that sentence, I was thinking of an Andy Crouch editorial you ran recently, which was basically like saying there is no culture. It's all about where you are in your community and loving your neighbor, which of course involves those broader things, but they, those broader things are always within the context of your initial surroundings, which is an, an important concept that sort of affects immediately the way we think about politics. I think.
1: I'd agree. I think similarly to culture, The symbolic nature of the president, how this is a person who represents the country to the rest of the world also means that folks uh, are very interested in who that person is.
2: I also was just thinking about local issues and whether they were ones that we found easy to get as passionate about. I think there's almost a sense of things that we take for granted when it comes to local issues like, yes, the street should be paved. Yes, the snow should get plowed. Yes, the garbage should get picked up it doesn't necessarily seem like something that would be partisan. I think sometimes it's easier to get worked up and passionate about things that feel more controversial. Of course, I skipped a, a pretty important issue right there, which are, are several, which is one like education, for instance, which does is determined to some extent at the national level, but also at your local school board, and then development and business. But some of those issues feel a little bit Perhaps thornier, or they don't cut across partisan lines as much, so we don't necessarily know how to cheer for them. I often find that people will feel a little bit more apathetic about things when they don't know whom to cheer for. So, sorry, one of many Olympic analogies I will make during this time, but Americans are generally not interested in sports where Americans are not good at. And I think part of that is because they do not know where their rooting interests should be at. Okay, so what is the case for? voting in local elections and for actually getting involved, which, you know, maybe, Stephen, you can give us some of the examples of how people get involved with their local government beyond voting.
1: Because things are so close at the local level, things like city council and mayor, there's a lot of opportunities for people to get involved and just start showing up in addition to voting. In our current political climate, there's clearly so much gridlock in Washington that Really, in some ways, there's not a lot happening. And so then things turn to the state and local level to actually get things done where you have people that oftentimes I feel like are more problem solvers, more about making a difference uh, in a very immediate way versus kind of an ideological battle that may go on at, at the national or even state level.
3: Yeah, that's an interesting point. Like, It's interesting to think about the types of people that those respective callings would attract. Um, if you're attracted to, like, making a name for yourself or even just on a positive side, like affecting culture, then you're going to be a person who's drawn to, like, the national stage. If you're a problem solver, if you're an intermediary, if you're a person who wants to advocate for a specific group, you're you're much more likely, I think, to go, or you should be much more likely to go towards local politics. Steven, I'm curious if you could tell me what caused you to get involved in local politics.
1: Well, I think uh, in this example that we see in the ordinance, it was a uh, lack of responsiveness on the state level that um, we thought we had a great coalition of people, of very diverse faiths and, and different ideologies that were really concerned about this issue. And when uh, the state did not act in a positive way, um, we turned to the local level to see what could be done there. And I think another important aspect of local politics is that sometimes it's a little bit more removed from the influence of money on the political system where you have at the state level lots of lobbyists and lots of very expensive campaigns that end up uh, influencing uh, votes and, and positions of, of folks there that uh, when you at the local level are just not there. And so we saw when, when the policymakers were closest to the people, they were much more responsive and willing to act And I would say solve this problem of predatory lending.
2: I'm curious about how your actual strategy, potentially like when you were sitting in meetings with lawmakers or other influencers, changed when you moved from the state to local level.
1: It's just a lot easier to get folks, especially in this case, working in Texas, a very large state, to get folks together at the local level to show up for a city council meeting to to sit down with a city council member that, you know, maybe in their church or maybe the mayor is or people that they're they know uh probably on a much more intimate or in relational level to uh, get active and, and have their opinions expressed on this. It's it's much easier at that local level than saying, "Okay, there's going to be a hearing in 2 weeks. We need you to drive 5 hours to Austin and sit for 3 hours and then try and testify." And, and then putting in the full political context, including the lobbyists and all that, uh, it gets complicated. So here it was much easier to sit down um, and, and have face-to-face meetings with the people that are going to make the decisions and get people, get church members, get pastors, get other nonprofits to a city council meeting than it was to to have folks come all the way to the state capital.
3: Yeah, and the payoff is higher, too. Like, not only is the, the cost lower of being involved because you don't have to drive all that way and you don't have to like wait forever, but you can see direct impact you're making on other people in that situation.
2: I guess I was actually going to push back on that idea of like, is the payoff higher? Because the organizing that you have to do is going to still be pretty great in terms of having people show up, write letters. I think in the ordinance, they like send out these postcards at one point. Um, yeah the the amount it seemed like there was a decent amount of organizing that went on and trying to get people to show up to meetings or contact their officials and yet, in this particular film right so the the film was about the politics um and the rulings of a small texas town that's that's the the outcome that is portrayed in this movie so they if you guys if for our listeners who haven't watched the film, they actually are pretty successful. There's a campaign that goes around and is successful in implementing these ordinances in cities much larger than the one that's profiled in this film. But to some extent, that that is your reward right there is that small town. And so is there ever a case to be made that maybe it's not the best place to put resources in to affect things when they're at the local level and to to really just try to go for something that's gonna have bigger stakes for a larger amount of people?
1: Well, I would say that these two things aren't happening totally independent or in a vacuum. That's certainly one of the good things about moving to the local level was the folks that were organized and got active in the city council were also now knowledgeable and active at the state level. Uh, and hopefully the kind of statement that a city council makes gets the attention of other state and national lawmakers. Um, so I think that you know there is at the local level more opportunity for progress that, that immediate difference and immediate change can be made. Um, but ultimately, especially when it comes to petty lending, we need these regulations to be passed on on a l- larger level. But I'd also say that there's a lot of resources and money and organizing spent and energy spent trying to lobby Congress that um, does not produce the same type of results that we've seen at the local level, particularly given kind of the impasse on so many things that we see in Congress.
3: Yeah, I would I don't know about actual efficacy, but I would say on the level of like personal satisfaction, uh it has to be immensely frustrating to be in national politics, right? Because you're constantly proposing things and or trying to fix problems and nothing. Like what we keep hearing right now is at least in this time, uh in this cultural moment, we're talking constantly about gridlock. We're talking constantly about, you know, people not listening to other people and nothing happening. Um, and so what's the solution to that? Maybe the solution is to start on the local level and like to, to sort of do a bottom up approach. It's the same. I mean, on a, on a personal level, it's probably a similar thing where, you know, I go home and I would play Tetris and feel like I accomplished something at least, right? Because I I might spend my whole day like trying to get something to happen and because of reality or whatever, it, it can't happen. But at least in these cases, like there's a real thing you can do and feel like you've personally invested in it and something's come out of it.
2: So I'm really interested in talking about kind of the sacrifices or risks or unique dangers of local politics. And so, Stephen, my first question for you is how does local politics affect personal relationships in a unique way?
1: That's a great question. I think in in many ways, it's a, a much more personal and relational type interaction than um, you know, say you're a member of Congress in Washington. And so when people of faith and churches and pastors decide to kind of get involved, then they're going to uh, need to be very cognizant and aware of the relationships, particularly in their church, uh, of folks who are going to be affected and, uh, you know, make sure it's a very, uh, relational endeavor. And, and I think, uh, that's good. That's the way it should be. I think we need to, um, Be even more uh, cognizant of the uh, personal feelings that are involved and um, not demonize and turn this into some sort of political um, game that you see kind of on the national level where people are so um, ideological and so uh, harsh to people that see a different view. Uh, At the local level, you've got to really take into account the feelings of the people that may be sitting in the pew next
0: to you. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind the scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more. Well, I wanted to ask, Stephen, how politics has
3: affected your personal relationships. Have you you had awkward moments because of political lobbying or whatever, or like just political maneuvering against uh, your friendships or people in your churches?
1: Uh, there have been a, several of those actually. I'll tell you, I'll mention too. Um, when I was working for the Texas Baptist Christian Life Commission, and we started talking about this concern around payday lending, it became known to me that there was a, a very high executive of one of the payday lenders who was a very active deacon in one of our churches. <laughs> and so, knowing that, you need to, you know, kind of. I think it. Kind of tampers down the the rhetoric when you say you know you're talking about uh, people in one of your churches and um, similarly one Sunday I was sitting in uh, my church First Baptist Austin and we'd also worked very hard against the expansion of uh, gambling in Texas and casinos and and uh, had that week you know had a very tense meeting with the chairman of a committee who was proposing and pushing forward a bill to expand. Gambling in Texas, and I turned to my left and looked down the row, and there he is sitting on the same pew, uh, attending (laughs) the church. Those things do happen for sure.
2: How does your faith in that way kind of inform how you proceed with those relationships?
1: Well, I think you have to, um, really give folks the benefit of the doubt and say that you know, no one is you know perfectly good or perfectly evil, that they're. It, this is where where they're coming from, and maybe they even have the a, a similar goal uh in mind they just get there in a different way, and so I think you just have to uh treat everyone as as a fellow child of god as a fellow image bearer and and treat them as as a neighbor that you love and I think that's very difficult when you don't know someone when you are removed and you can kind of Play into the political name calling and that sort of thing, but when you're actually sitting down and talking to somebody, I think that changes. And I have friends who, in my line of work, you know, friends or family members from either party who will say, "Oh my gosh, how can you do that? How can you work with those fill in the blanks Republican or Democrat, whatever? I get both." And the truth is, I think when you get closer and you know folks, at least in my case, I've become less partisan. I um, can say. Oh, here's somebody who I don't agree with on much, but they're great on this issue. Or I don't I don't agree with where they're coming from, but they're smart and they're trying and they're representing the people that they that put them in office. And so I think you you humanize folks for sure.
3: This is kind of tangential, but it, that what you just said kind of illuminates for me how little we actually know people that we theoretically know very well, right? So Like the two major presidential candidates, we all know a lot of facts about those people, but we talk about them as if they are total strangers. Actually knowing is like a pretty profound concept that could help guide, I think, um, our politics, and especially on the local level, is kind of something you have to know inherently (laughs) in order to get anything done, I think.
1: True, and I think as I encourage people of faith, pastors and church members to become advocates and become involved, whether locally or nationally. One of the things I say is just go sit down and have a meeting before you want to ask them or or lobby for a particular issue or a bill. Just sit down and say, you know, um, just wanted to get to know you. Um, just let you know that I'm, I'm praying for you. See, is there anything that my church can help you with or my organization, whatever it is. And uh, that will go a long way to humanizing that person for sure. But also, There will come a day when maybe there is something that you want to ask of them and and they'll already have a relationship established and most likely there'll be points of connection. Maybe your kids go to the same school or you played in the same soccer league or baseball league, you know.
3: That can be an extreme, too, though, right? Like that's a controversial idea, especially when you extrapolate it into uh, national politics. It's like the idea of good old boyism, the idea that you because so and so is friends with so and so, then this happened. Can that not be like kind of dangerous to start inserting actively into your political relationships?
1: That's a good question. I guess I'm not advocating, you know, I don't think we're talking about special favors. I don't think you're asking folks to do something for you out of your own self-interest. That's the other thing. I think when we're talking about people of faith getting involved, becoming advocates, policymakers, no matter what level, are so used to people coming into their office, setting up a meeting and asking for something that benefits themselves. What I'm saying is establish that relationship. But the type of advocacy I think the church ought to be about is on behalf of others. Um, and and so I think that's a pretty big difference than what I would, you know, if you want to call it the good old boy network, that sort of greasing the skids to, to better yourself or to get a contract or whatever it is. We're talking about establishing relationships so that you can do something on behalf of someone who doesn't have that relationship.
2: So in other words, using your platform or your position of influence to better an outcome from someone else.
1: And particularly for people who are not as, um, whose whose voice is not as often heard in the political process. So in this case, the type of folks who find themselves stuck in a 400% interest loan are not typically the folks who are going to go lobby the city council or the, or the state legislature. And so we need to help um, make that happen, whether it's using our own voice uh, on their behalf or even just as important Making sure they their voice is heard and bringing them along and and making sure they know how to do that and when to do that to be most effective is, is very important.
2: Hey Stephen, could you just give us a sense of what local issues are?
1: Local issues are things that you know the city council or maybe the county is going to have authority over. Some of those might be transportation issues, the the bus route. Um, In this case, we talked about we're talking about payday lending and how these businesses operate uh, zoning issues where businesses are located. Um, There's a lot of other kind of licensing type issues that are taken care of uh, on the local level, whether it's liquor licenses or other um, business licenses. I got involved in a in an issue around um, energy costs at a city owned utility was going to change the way they charged for electricity and it was going to have an incredibly bad impact on churches and other nonprofits.
2: How do you think that churches normally choose what issues they're going to organize around?
1: I really encourage folks to base their advocacy uh, on their mission endeavors as an outgrowth of the mission at work they do in the community to get to know folks that maybe they're serving in their uh, soup kitchens or clothes pantry or Meals on Wheels or Habitat for Humanity to get to know folks and and start there with what they're seeing in the local community. So it's really kind of a missions-based advocacy rather than kind of a political wins, what's the hot issue, and hey, let's let's pick some of those that we like. Um, let's start with what's happening to the people that we love as our neighbors. Our
3: churches should be actively talking to people in our churches, people we're doing outreach towards, and asking them, like, you know, what could we advocate for for you? Maybe not as as explicitly, but just kind of ear to the ear to the what's the (laughs) what is that phrase? Put your ear to the old ear to the ground. Thank you. Put your ear to the ground and kind of hear like what is harming people.
1: Is that right? Sure. I think that's a good way to put it. In this case, on payday lending, we had folks coming to churches asking for help with a light bill. And it turns out they were paying two hundred dollars every two weeks on a seven hundred dollar loan and never reducing what they owed. And we would have never known that if we didn't sit down, the pastor didn't sit down and say, what's really going on here? How can we really get to the root of this problem? Um, I've got friends who who are working on issues around public education who you know have been mentoring and reading to kids and kind of partnering with local elementary school. And that's wonderful. They've been doing that for years. But now they're sitting down with the principal and saying, what's really going on in your school How can we be a voice for you at the state legislature?
3: When you talk about like, should churches do politics? Should pastors engage in politics? A lot of time the implication is, or the assumption is we're talking about preaching. (laughs) You know, I'm wondering if that is something you think is valuable as a preacher preaching about these issues once they recognize the issues. And if not, or if so, what else could they be doing in addition to preaching?
1: That is absolutely valuable. I think a preacher on a Sunday morning in the pulpit saying not only why he or she cares about this issue and is passionate about what's going on in the community, certainly what does the, the Bible have to say to it, what does Scripture, what does Christ's influence on our lives say about this, and to know that they're going to be speaking to probably hundreds of folks every every Sunday is good and important, and in, in that way models for the congregation what, what they care about. But um, it needs to certainly go beyond that. I, I hope we have more pastors that are willing to to do that, and importantly, do that in a very nonpartisan way. One thing we're absolutely not suggesting um, for our congregations is to get involved in partisan politics in any way as far as endorsing or opposing candidates for office. That's a whole separate issue that is fraught with even more problems. And I think to know how to speak about things that have a political impact or, or are uh, can be influenced by public policy is important. Um, and you can do that without trying to endorse or oppose a particular candidate.
2: And I would say that get, going back to your comments about encouraging churches to be nonpartisan and what gives people flexibility to really um, just join an issue or advocate for an issue is because that they don't have these like larger constraints that are keeping them back in some ways.
1: And also really... Um, their willingness to partner with other organizations. Uh, one thing that's highlighted in in the ordinance is um, that in one case, in one city, it was the NAACP that was concerned about this issue because of its impact on minority communities. Um, there was a kind of independent food bank type ministry that was working on it. There was a Baptist church. There was Catholic bishops, I think, to partner with other nonprofit organizations that have some expertise and interest whether they be faith-based or not, and then certainly be willing to partner with the larger uh, faith community is really important. And a lot of times, no matter the issue, you're going to run up against folks' partisan um, leanings or ideologies. That's just going to happen. But I think when you're talking about the local level, when you're saying, this is what's happening to Joe, who we've been seeing in our food pantry every week, or this is what's happening to that teacher that you've been mentoring um, in their um, classroom, they're going to get fired because of cuts to the education budget, what have you. I think when you put it at the personal level, you kind of take a little bit of that edge off the partisan nature. And I hope that um, what scripture uh, has to say about an issue would help take a little bit of that edge off too.
2: Well, thanks so much for chiming into this conversation with us. And again, for any of our listeners that are interested in watching this film that we reference, it is on our website right now, ChristianityToday.com. You can check it out there. We're gonna acknowledge our next segment, which I discussed last week, called Slow to Speak. And during that time we like to highlight feedback, comments, and you know, sometimes praise or criticism that we feel like is worth noting from our listeners. You can go on Twitter, we're at CT Podcasts, Facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. And you can leave that there. And if it meets some of the criteria above, we are happy to showcase it. We do not have feedback for this week, though. So I am telling you all of this so that if you would like to get profiled next week. Everyone
3: basically listened to Last Week and Thought. Yeah, checks out. We agree.
2: I think so, right? It was like unanimous.
3: Yeah, unanimous praise. That's
2: how we interpret silence.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I wish. That is not how I interpret silence.
2: Everyone is applauding. I hear it. We are going to transition now to precious moments and here we are going to celebrate and revel in things that are making us happy. Guess what? I am the host the next couple of weeks with Caitlin out. So we are talking about the Olympics every week. This week is kind of generic. I just want to hear everyone's favorite moment from the Olympics. It does not have to be a tear jerking moment. It can be something that you thought was funny or memorable. And also please share where we people can find you online. Steven, are you ready to go first for this one?
1: Sure, I will. So as previously mentioned, I'm a big uh, Texas Longhorn and I've been proud of several swimmers that have uh, won medals already. And uh, last night, Townley Haas helped win the four by 200 meter uh, freestyle relay for USA, uh, along with Michael Phelps, of course.
2: Wasn't it exciting? It was such a good relay.
1: It was really good. It was really good. So that's always fun um, watching fellow Longhorns have success. So that's definitely My moment so far, um, as far as how people can can get in touch with what we're doing, uh, cbf.net, and you can find advocacy-related materials there. But also, lendjustly.com is the website of the Faith for Just Lending Coalition, which is a national uh, coalition, a very broad group of folks, Catholic, Baptists, Evangelicals, NAE, Southern Baptists, all different types. uh, Folks can get more information about are uh, the particular issue of Payday Lending. And I'm on Twitter, but not that active, but it's at Stephen K. Reeves.
2: Awesome. Richard?
3: I'm going to go rogue and say that I didn't watch any of the That's Olympics, really.
2: N- not true. I watched it with you in the same room. Yesterday. But I didn't
3: know what I was even looking at. Every time I looked at the screen, it was just like horses like knocking down stuff. And that seemed like, bad. And I felt sad for the horses. They looked disappointed last what i was gonna say was that last weekend i fully intended to watch the olympics i fully intended to watch gymnastics because i was really pumped about that because i like grew up watching carrie strug and dominique macianu i was super excited but instead i got sucked into the rocket league final championships which is just like a random video game i ended up watching it on i'm rolling my eyes all weekend so sorry you can find me on twitter (laughs) At the Richard Clark.
2: So my top Olympic moment was very hard. It's still very hard because I have to figure out if I want to be like unique or cliche right now. It's all about...
3: When everyone realized that uh, everyone was cupping.
2: That was not my favorite moment.
3: The green pool.
2: Okay, so I set up my computer and projector so I can watch the Olympics in my backyard. And last night, as soon as we got it projected... We got to watch Michael, uh, Michael Phelps' race that he won by, like, I think 0.05 seconds or less. And that was very exciting. I feel like at this point, Michael Phelps and the Olympics are kind of, like, synonymous in my mind. Like, I can't remember an Olympics without him except for the Kerry Strug 96 Olympics. And there is a part of me that is incredibly feeling like he's just Michael Phelps is completely overexposed. But in this particular race, he had had a lot more like attitude that he normally does. He like basically was looking at the crowd and asking them to give him some love afterwards. And he like pointed up his number one. And then when he was on, you know, for the medal ceremony, he actually like burst out laughing on there, which we later discovered was because some of his friends were making jokes in the stands. So there was a different part of like the humanity of him that was shown. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for this week. Thank you, Richard, for coming on the show and for producing it along with All Red. We are also thankful for Kate Shellnet. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast. We're on Overcast, Overcast. too, and probably on Google Play.
3: Uh, I tried to search it on Google Play the other day. couldn't find it. We will
2: definitely get up on Google Play. Can someone email us and tell us what to do? Also, let us know if we're on Spotify. If you like the show, make sure to rate and review us on iTunes. That's actually even a stronger way that I know that you like it beyond the silence from yeah, you guys. Yeah, that's
3: huge. The ratings are huge.
2: Okay. We'll see you all next week.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast